0: don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. In our recent discussions on cash and the power and possibilities of electronic cash, you can actually begin to see that cash is actually a small part of a broader principle of freedom. That the power and low barrier to exit is actually what prevents abuse and corruption in all manner of institutions and social organization. What is up, crew? Welcome back to the Crypto Economy Podcast. I have got one today. I wanted to close out our... Not really close out. We'll come back to it, I'm sure, at some point. But our discussion of the cashless society and uh, the point, the, the underlying purpose and power of digital cash, um, as well as just cash in general. Uh, and uh, this was one that I have been sitting on for a while and wanted to hit it when I thought it was most pertinent to what we have been talking about. This is an article talking about the same Principle, the same concept of what cash and uh, electronic cash enable, uh, but in a political context, in a geographical and political context. And this is another work by Nick Zabo, which I'm sure everybody should know who Nick Zabo is by now. But if you don't, uh, you got to go follow him on Twitter. Um, He's Probably Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, but, you know, true cyberpunk, been around for a long time, and his body of work is amazing. You can find it all on unenumerated.blogspot.com, and uh, this is a piece that he wrote on, uh, in 2007 uh, on August 16th, and it is titled Exit and Freedom, and we're going to talk about the power of exit and how... Uh, that concept and that principle is in fact the determining factor of the uh, degree of abuse and corruption that many different institutions, in the same way that cash limits the ability of intermediaries to censor and surveil, um, that this is actually a universal principle. This is not something that just takes place in financial uh, exchanges. Um, It's kind of a part of uh, human reality and interaction. So, without further ado, we are going to go ahead and jump into this uh, amazing piece by Nick Zabo. uh Exit and Freedom." Why did the early United States have much stronger property rights and far lower taxes than today, even though it is nominally governed by the same political form and a constitution that has undergone only a few amendments. Why do Hong Kong and Singapore currently lead the world in economic freedom? Why did the fall of the Berlin Wall spell the end of European communist states? What political changes or changes to our own lives would give us stronger property rights and lower taxes? What stands out about Singapore and Hong Kong and other entities that have the most economic freedom in their regions, such as Bahrain in the Arab Middle East, is that they specialize in international trade. To encourage business travel, they must put few restrictions and tax penalties on travel. Large proportions of their population have strong international social ties. Large proportions of the population of these countries could easily move out of the country if their local rights were violated. Strong international, personal, and business ties allow them to quickly reestablish themselves in a different but not-so-foreign country. In other words, when a small country specializes in mediation of international trade, the exit cost for the people from whom it collects most of its tax revenue is low. To maintain their tax revenues, they must maintain a productive international trade business, and to maintain international trade, These governments must thus maintain low exit costs for a large proportion of their population. Graphic. The Laffer curve of tax rate versus tax revenue, black and then the corresponding curve of GDP, green. When governments maximize tax revenue, the prosperity and economic freedom of their taxpayers suffers. End Graphic. Governments of almost any form try to maximize their tax revenues, and government employees often also gain personal satisfaction from being able to control the lives and property of others. This goes under various euphemisms, such as the ambitions to, quote, change the world and, quote, make a difference. This process is facilitated primarily by high exit costs and is limited almost only by limits on governmental ability to increase. Exit costs. The maximum point on the Laffer curve, the most tax that a government can collect, is lower and occurs at a lower percentage tax rate in countries where exit costs are low. Thus, the tax rates in Hong Kong, Singapore, and Bahrain are lower than among their culturally similar neighbors that do not specialize in international intermediaries. At the other end of the spectrum from Hong Kong and Singapore, are countries with isolated populations, with poor access to world communications and travel. Add to this countries where tax revenues can be gained from taxing agricultural land or minerals rather than potentially mobile quote, human capital. These countries tend to have the fewest freedoms, even among highly developed countries. Those with more homogeneous populations that speak a tongue seldom spoken outside the country and thus have far stronger internal than international social ties, tend to tax their human capital the most, for example, the Scandinavian countries. In other words, 1. The governments of Singapore and Hong Kong have to encourage free travel to and from many other countries to encourage the constant human interchange that is essential to international trade, making it impractical to set up onerous travel restrictions. Two, most residents of Singapore and Hong Kong have strong social ties, both business and personal, outside the country. And three, the vast majority of residents of almost all other countries are tied to their territories by strong internal social networks and the lack of external social networks that could support them if they needed to escape. That makes it easy for governments to tax, regulate, and control the residents for the same reason that it's easy for prison guards to abuse inmates. It's hard to escape. The American colonies and the early American Republic both had remarkably strong property rights and very low taxes by our standards, despite sharp changes in the form of government. With few changes in the form of government since, taxes have risen almost tenfold, and property rights often now mean little more than the right to keep after-tax capital gains. The answer to this American puzzle is, again, exit costs. Farmland was the dominant form of wealth in the 18th and early 19th century, and practically free, yet very good farmland was available in America on the western frontier. Any oppression... Any high taxes or other violations of property rights could be countered by pulling up stakes and moving west. If you didn't want your local farmers to leave, you had to respect their rights, in sharp contrast to the traditional form of agriculture where serfs were stuck on the land. On the other hand, black slaves in the U.S. provide a sharp contrast to the remarkably free white farmers, a condition explained by state and federal fugitive slave laws, which spread a virtual iron curtain for slaves across the entire vast expanse of the United States, in free states as well as slave states. Human capital is very easy to tax when it gathers in large organizations, such as modern corporations, as these organizations must be audited, and auditing provides the information needed for the income tax, by far the most lucrative form of tax ever developed. When America's frontier disappeared, when the good agricultural land was claimed and industrial wealth became more important than agricultural wealth, and industrial wealth was flowed in easily audited forms through corporations and to their employees, taxes rose and property rights for all started to erode, a process that continues to this day. Countries that depend on human capital, as almost every country these days does, often throw up legal barriers to exit. Countries that worry about, quote, brain drain sometimes charge extortionate passport fees. These are examples of countries erecting virtual Berlin walls in order to raise the exit costs of their countries, suppress jurisdictional competition, and thus increase their tax revenues. Another form of this are long-arm statutes, especially when used to collect taxes on companies that have only minimal contracts with the jurisdiction. Why are governments imposed on us rather than chosen? Why can't we shop for countries like we shop for cars? Why has progress in jurisdiction shopping movements such as the Free State Project been so slow? Because interstate travel is considered a fundamental right under U.S. law, the exit costs imposed by law on moving state to state are very low the slow progress of the Free State Project points up several factors. One, that many, if not most, taxes and other violations of property rights considered onerous come from federal rather than local governments, and moving just from state to state within the United States does not avoid these. Two, that no state, not even New Hampshire, is so remarkably better than any other state to motivate many people to move. And three, that local social ties, whether for personal or business relationships, are much more expensive for most people to break than the gains to be had from increased economic freedom between one state and another. In the United States and today, and most of the world, exit costs are imposed primarily by the ways we live our lives, and in particular by our personal and business networks, not by artificial Berlin wall like barriers. Modern deprivations of liberty have much more to do with this fact than with the often exaggerated differences in forms of government or with supposedly crucial rights such as the right to vote. Today, never in the United States have so many people had the right to vote, yet never in the United States have we had so high taxes and so few property rights. With the fall of communism, for most people in the world, government restrictions on exit are no longer the dominant barrier to exit. Our lack of liberty has rather to do with the fact that the vast majority of our strong social ties lie within a territory monopolized by a nation-state. Any form of large modern nation-state that we can practically expect to encounter, as well as any state of any size that restricts immigration, will engage in extortionate deprivations of property that many people in many earlier times and places, such as colonial America, did not tolerate. How, then, can one best protect one's rights? By living one's life in a way that makes exit costs low. Quote, Be prepared to vote with your feet. Add interstate and international diversity to your social networks, both personal and business. Lower your costs of exiting, if the need should arise, the jurisdictions that impose on the territories wherein you reside. Repeatedly in history, from the old American frontier to the fall of the Berlin Wall to modern jurisdictions that specialize in international trade, low exit costs have not only enabled liberty for the individual and the small group, but they have more than any other factor motivated the larger jurisdiction to provide the most important freedoms and rights for those who stay put. Grow interpolitical roots so that no single polity can chop down your tree. The good news is that modern communications, travel, and standardization of international languages, mostly on English, have made diversifying our social networks, growing international routes, far easier than ever before in history. End quote. Despite the closing of physical frontiers, which has had an extremely deleterious impact on freedom, other trends may be bringing about the lowering of exit costs. International communications networks and the international standardization on a few languages, and perhaps even just one, which quite fortunately for my readers is the one I'm currently writing in, combined with low international travel costs, are leading to the development of more strong personal and business social ties that cross borders. Multinational small businesses are joining multinational corporations in developing cross-border business ties. But there are also many threats by governments to reestablish or increase exit costs by throwing up virtual Berlin Walls and fugitive taxpayer networks. Extraterritorial assertions of jurisdiction, especially of tax jurisdiction, threaten to throw up enforcement networks akin to the old fugitive slave laws in the antebellum United States. Freedom of travel is being threatened by paranoid responses to the overblown threat of terrorism but at least one good group is fighting to counter this threat. To counteract these threats, basic freedoms must be protected by our courts from encroachment by other governmental branches. The U.S. Supreme Court counts both voting and interstate travel as fundamental rights. Of these fundamental rights, travel, but especially international travel, the right to pass through the airports and Brandenburg gates and Checkpoint Charlies of the world, is by far more important. So let's hit our sponsor real fast, and then we will jump right back in to discuss how this principle applies to electronic cash and Bitcoin in particular. Alright, so that was Exit and Freedom by Nick Zabo, And again, you can find that on his blog, unenumerated.blogspot.com, where you can find an ocean of other uh, blogs, essays, all kinds of stuff that uh, Zabo has gone through and we've read a ton of stuff by him on the podcast before uh, as in- any regular listener knows and I definitely encourage you to go uh, you can check that out on CryptoEconomy.life um, we've got his amazing work uh, Shelling Out The Origins of Money uh, as a, available as a long read so you can hear that whole piece and that is a wonderful piece um, what money is and where it has come from. Uh, But this piece in particular, I thought, was really applicable to our conversation that we've been having this week on a cashless society and the ability for cash to act as a hedge against uh, abusive, uh, corrupt, and surveilling uh, intermediaries. And I think it's the power of... The power of exit is such an important... Um, element in this whole thing. It's it's an underlying principle that applies to so many different parts of what it means, to, or, or uh, to exactly how you sustain uh, liberty, liberty and autonomy. Um, and in fact, it's it's the essential underlying argument of uh, of the uh, anarchist ideology or the voluntarist ideology. Um, and most people have a huge misunderstanding or they just have some, you know, straw man version of uh, hearing someone else explain what someone else explained of what the anarchist ideology is. But in, in a fundamental essence, it's really just the power of exit. It's to say to any government program that, you know, you need my explicit consent or I can remove my participation. Now, we can argue all day about whether or not um, a service like that could sustain itself very well or, you know, the the debate on exactly how, uh, you know, what logistics would be worked out in the agreements between uh, organizations that uh, are specifically needed over contractual obligations or over uh, certain geographical areas like a a sort of HOA thing or something. But um, we can argue all day about that. But the, the point is, from the voluntarist perspective, is that it's incredibly hard to argue that there is anything that could prevent abuse and corruption as fast and as uh, completely as the ability to simply remove your funding the very second you hear about something corrupt. Um, that, like, it would keep an unbelievable check on authoritarian regimes and, uh, ridiculous uh, waste expenses and stuff done by the government. The ideology is really kind of a, a order of operations. Like, we're, let's, let's go top down. Let's look at the absolute greatest atrocities of human society, of, like, what are the biggest of the biggest problems and how do we prevent them from happening? So we're talking about the, the gulags. We're talking about the great leap forward, the... Venezuela and the incredible monetary, like, disaster that they are doing that is starving millions of people. We're talking about massive, like, governmental disasters that result in entire populations being destroyed, left in poverty because of the the irresponsibility of a few. Like, okay, we can work out, you know, how to build roads later. Like, I think that's not a—I don't even see that as being a huge challenge— to figure out how to stop things like Venezuela from happening, you have to, have, you have to enable the power of exit. And it's, it's, the, it's the weighing of, like, okay, like, we can figure out, like, let's cooperate and just figure out how to get travel figured like, sorted out. And uh, in the meantime, let's go ahead and do what will allow people in Venezuela to not have to starve because uh, Maduro is an idiot. Um, and uh, so that's like kind of the overarching like concept is like let's deal with the big things and then we'll work out the, the details of the small stuff but I'm a little, little off topic here but um, uh, we're, I'm just talking about the idea that the power of exit is essential to freedom it's essential to um, maintaining property rights and uh, property rights are essential to trade um, without, without that stack of uh, um, enabling principles like, the, like those the networks for those things are on top of each other. Um, you cannot have trade without good property rights. you cannot have good property rights without good governance. you cannot have good governance without a low barrier to exit. So how this applies to Bitcoin is extremely important because Bitcoin is an escape valve. electronic cash just in general, um, or you know cash in the example uh, of uh, our previous read from Coin Center is, is a huge, is an enormous hedge uh, against restrictions on capital movement and uh, restrictions on personal exchange. It grants the autonomy of the owner. And cash is also something that secures property rights. It's, uh, you no longer have to have permission to own the property, you are the bearer of the instrument that is the property. Like, so cash is the ultimate in property rights. And in that same way, electronic cash, and more specifically, Bitcoin, is a brilliant alternative structure to the enabling of property rights. It's property rights defended by irreversible math, like math that cannot be faked, as opposed to property rights enabled by an increasingly abusive and corrupt state and uh, legal system. Not that it doesn't work to some degree. Obviously, it does. We have trade. We have exchange. We have an economy. But it is increasingly becoming less and less about the people and individual rights, and more and more about what the authorities think we should be doing or how the authorities think we should be molding the world to their vision. And they are confiscating more and more wealth, whether it be directly through taxes or, more importantly, the far more invasive and poisonous taxation through inflating the currency and bitcoin bitcoin doesn't really eliminate the doesn't really give a huge exit to taxation it sort of does but particularly right now without a strong degree of privacy um, it doesn't it's not necessarily about like not paying taxes uh, I think a lot of people think that that's how, like, what's going to go on there, and I don't think that's, that's the case at all. I think most people will pay their taxes on capital gains in cryptocurrency, in the long run at least. I know early on that was not the case at all, um, but I think as things move forward, it will be the case. Uh, but it's a very different proposition to require them to actually take taxes than for the government being able to issue their own debt. And that's the important thing. That's what Bitcoin changes. The two dominant forms of funding for government are actually not direct taxation. Direct taxation is a big one, but it's also in the hidden A, just inflation in general, and B, the ability to, uh, uh, the ability to loan themselves their own debt. Um, and now uh, the reason is, even though the debt is um, like our our deficit is not as high as our tax revenue. So why would I say the uh, the majority of it is actually a secret taxation? That's because the government, like just the very nature of the fractional reserve system, increases costs across the economy. Like this is where this is where we get the everything funneled by debt, and we get that that nine x increase on the value of the dollar and or excuse me, 9x uh, increase on the supply of the dollar um, within the fractional reserve system as deposits become loans, become deposits, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that fuels a uh, boom and bust cycle that funnels uh, real resources and capital up the, up the ladder to large financial institutions and governments and at the same time lowering the obligations of previous government promises. Um, and as well as the obligations of those financial institutions. I'm um, going to go back and listen to Hans-Hermann uh, uh what was it called? Why Fiat Exists? Or is that the, how can fiat exist? Crap! What was it called? I just read it the other day. Let's see if I've still got it in my, in my things here. Case for electronic cash. Why state demands control of money. That's the one. Yes, uh, go back and listen to that one. It's just a couple episodes back. Um, but uh, in that, he goes into the nature of the fractional reserve system and why it enables or how it enables such immense power to allocate capital and redistribute uh, property rights of other people without them knowing, without them having any idea why the price of housing has doubled in 6 years and uh, like why you cannot buy a house without going into debt now and why the price of education and healthcare like why are all these things constantly skyrocketing and then we go through these huge boom and bust cycles where everybody loses their houses and the, and the banks get bailed out like, like what is it that enables that degree of capital movement from the bottom to the top of society and uh, it's built into the structure of the financial system. It's inherent to it. And Bitcoin is an escape valve on that. Bitcoin is a fundamentally different financial system. Any capital markets or uh, derivatives built on top of Bitcoin is not uh, susceptible to that degree of systemic uh, problem. Like the fractional reserve system is systemic. It's built into the core of the system. You can still have... uh, fractional reserve at the edge of the bitcoin system. You can still have a company that is, you know, loaning out bitcoin to people or uh like bitcoin deposits like into their like an exchange, an exchange. Great example, Mount Gox. Mount Gox was essentially fractional reserve. They were insolvent. They said, "Oh, we have this many thousands, hundreds of thousands of bitcoin in our depositors accounts, but really it's just points in their ledger and they only had uh, you know, a 20th or a 30th of that left in their actual reserves but that is an edge case that's not that wasn't bitcoin that was causing that and it was exactly people trying to withdraw back to the fully audited to the foundation of the system the bitcoin blockchain that basically pulled the game like pulled the rug out from under their whole charade but understand that happened in a matter of a year a year and a half like this was a tiny length of time that it took to uncover that huge uh, imbalance because it was very obvious based on the nature of the network. Um, And that's what, uh, that's a huge, huge part of everything that enables uh, government overreach, that enables uh, a lot of corporate controls and uh, authoritarian behavior from people high up in society or in the political class that they could not get away with if people had a low cost of exit. And I think Bitcoin is exactly that, that could uh, put a giant, like, just hit the brakes on the speed with which the government is getting more invasive and uh, more controlling in people's lives, trying to micromanage everything we do. And it also sheds a light on how governments, quote-unquote, help things, how governments give out benefits. Think about it. Why is it that when they're trying to help people get health care, it's with health insurance? Like, why is that the, like, why is it that they're forcing us to purchase a product from another country? I mean, excuse me, from another company. Like, that's really crazy when you think about it. Like, imagine if they were trying to make uh, smartphones available to everyone and you simply had to buy a smartphone a smartphone like can you imagine being a smartphone company like in that industry or in that environment How, what a huge boost that would be to your bottom line to think that all the people who had not gotten a smartphone up to this point if they all just bought it it would be a whole lot cheaper to buy, to make smartphones and it would you'd be splitting you could have a lower margin of profit across the industry. That's basically the argument they make for insurance. And then you've got the exact same thing is that insurance, they've created all these regulations that ties insurance to your job, which is extremely dangerous. It adds a giant barrier to even moving occupations. It traps people in their job. Their cost of exit now is both their uh, their uh, professional uh, social ties, um, their income, and now their incredibly expensive health insurance that is only provided by their employees i mean by their employers so they're stuck with it in their job and you have another situation like welfare that traps them in a life that has this huge barrier to exit um like people now are living on welfare from cradle to grave people are just permanently impoverished and completely dependent on the government um it's done nothing to help poverty like if you look at the trends of poverty they were declining all the way into the '60s, and then they became stagnant in the '70s and '80s, and now they're actually increasing. Like the there are so many things where the government appears to be helping, or maybe even has the best intentions, but their policies are almost universally adding cost to the power or, or to the uh, uh, to the element of exit, to the ability for people to pack up. And just leave a system that is betraying them or a system that is not giving them what they want to leave a job that is not sufficient. And you saw those same sorts of regulations happening, occurring in the early 1900s. Like this has been going on for a very, very long time. And you just slowly increase barriers to exit. And all the major companies, all the wealthy in the um, uh, economy who are trying to get an upper hand through uh, government privilege are using this exact. Uh, method. Um, like, uh, that's why regulation was. Y- you notice the conversation is just by default that what we should be trying to do is get people good jobs. A job is a large barrier to exit. Now, if we were actually autonomous, if we were actually talking about trying to make it so that everybody can produce individually or share in like independent contractual obligations with people rather than being a strict contractual employee, you'd have an entirely different set of costs and movement between companies or organizations would be incredibly tiny. But that's not, what, that's not what's incentivized. What is, what is pushed more than anything and everything is an employer-employee relationship, which is a higher cost. So whether or not this is intentional, whether or not this is, uh, this is you know, some orchestrated conspiracy to trap everybody. Who knows? Who, who has a clue? I can't see into the brains of all these people. But nevertheless, that's what it's doing. Those are the results. And this is why our government continues to get larger and larger and institute more controls, and those controls increase the cost to leave, which prevents anyone from basically saying, you're voting with their feet. To pick up shop and peace out, uh, and I thought this was uh, this was a really good article talking about how so much of that even has to do with social ties and uh, like language uh, networks and so many other things. And as we become a global, as we become more of a global economy, those barriers are falling away. Like that's why I think even even though like micro trends and Like, more jurisdictional trends are towards the negative, where uh, governments are becoming more invasive, and uh, the freedom of speech is definitely being eroded, um, uh, freedom to uh, exchange and do with your labor that you wish to see, like make the change in the world that you are actually pushing for, rather uh, rather than laboring for some politician's view of the world. I think those things are getting worse. In, uh, in more of a uh, specific sense of the institutions that are governing us. Uh, and in the, in the corporate sense, I think um, uh, a lot of the time, well, I think it's kind of the nature of a monopoly or a, uh, uh, a centralized institution, really. I think that's just kind of the nature of things that grow. I think Amazon you know, starts out as an incredibly liberating technology and business, But then it grows so big and that it becomes an intermediary for so many transactions and for uh, so many people getting their uh, service or their products, uh, et cetera, et cetera, that their position becomes too easy to abuse. Um, And I think that just grows. I think that's just the nature of becoming large and becoming such a powerful network that uh, the temptation is just too big um, to not take advantage of it particularly when, you know, I just want to make the world a better place. You know, we just want to make the world better, so we should probably invent an algorithm that tells people where they can buy their stuff. Uh, But it gets overboard really quick. Um, However, in the broader sense of uh, poverty overall, of uh, uh, the freedom and liberation of the global economy, of uh, cultures mixing and uh, talking to each other even though it might be messy and crappy and argumentative, it is happening so much more today than it ever has in the past. The ability to get video and news right on the ground from something happening halfway around the world, from honest people, even though the degree of abuse from kind of established incumbents uh, has uh, very clearly grown a lot in the last the, uh, last few decades. Uh, these things though are are growing exponentially, um, and these networks are growing exponentially, and there is a far far higher degree of freedom because of the lower uh, uh, co- exits uh, co- cost to exit, um, and when and as people are uh, as people are becoming, I think there's this there's this huge growth in the entrepreneur culture again. And the idea of running a fully a fully internet business and being entirely, uh, essentially self sovereign and self producing uh, on these networks, like with a, with a, a fully a fully uh, digital business and a uh, production environment, that's going to lower those costs further and further and further. There are people who have packed up, like people who I listen to, who do great podcasts or sell some product or some course, or um, get people into, uh, uh, you know, whatever it is, the billions of things that are on the internet uh, that uh, businesses that just exist in that uh, ecosystem can literally just pack up, move to another country, and nobody uh, interacting with their show or their business or their product ever even knows. Like, you don't even have to, it, it doesn't alter how well they can provide the service at all. They just, you know, connect to a U.S. server and continue working on their website, et cetera, et cetera. And I think as that becomes, I think as more and more commerce goes online, as long as we retain electronic cash, as long as we retain the power of exit, and we have those escape valves like Bitcoin on the ability to uh, keep our capital safe from... uh, Retarded monetary policies like Venezuela and arguably the United States right now, uh, like the ability to opt out of those things, is exactly what will secure individual liberty and uh, the the autonomy and self sovereignty of uh, people all across the globe. Um, and it doesn't. I don't think it even has to be an ideological change. I think the ideological change will probably come after the technology is there to basically open us up to the world. I think our degree of what we would expect to have as freedom is actually a lot higher on net than it was 200 years ago, Um, without question, I think. Uh, uh, Not necessarily in exactly the United States, but I think across the globe, the ideas of kings and authoritarian leaders is more ridiculous than it has ever been in the past. So... I think uh you know I think we have a bright future ahead of us because of these technologies because of the growing uh globalization of the economy and I think a lot of it has to do with this principle which bitcoin enables which electronic cash is a part of which low barriers to travel which international communication is is the ability is the 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 ties between exit and freedom and I just thought this was a really fun one to cover uh, and I think it applies very strongly to what Bitcoin is creating as a global, uh, independent store of property rights and value that will act as an, es- an escape valve against corrupt and abusive governments, institutions, and corporations all across, all across the globe. Um, and I think it's an incredibly powerful thing. Uh, and it's one of the, one of the mini- many reasons that I think Bitcoin is literally going to change the world. So with that, we'll go ahead and close this here. I hope you guys enjoyed Nick Zabo's amazing piece, Exit and Freedom, and have enjoyed our discussion of electronic cash and what its effects on the world could be and uh, just kind of what the the risks versus the reward is going to be in this new ecosystem that is growing and uh, that you are enjoying as much as I am. Getting to be a part of it all right guys uh do not forget to ch- uh, follow nick zabo i think that's uh nick zabo s-z-a-b-o-4 i believe his tag is um i'll tag him on twitter and uh a link to the blog and his twitter in the show notes uh, so you can check that on anchor.fm slash what is that Cryptoconomy? the crypto economy i don't know Uh, I'll figure that out. All that stuff will be linked in the show notes and I'll put it on the Twitter post. Uh, So don't forget to check that out up there. And of course, uh, jump around on CryptoEconomy.life. We have so many different works. Uh, Again, many from Zabo. I think I've done like, I don't know, six or seven pieces of his now. Uh, And they're just all amazing. And uh, yeah, so check out CryptoEconomy.life and I will be here uh, next week. You guys have a wonderful weekend, and I'll uh, talk to you all on Monday. This has been the Crypto Economy Podcast. Until next time, take it easy, guys.